here we go. February 12, uh, 2012, lecture number 56 on the book of Romans. And uh, this has been quite the week uh, for mail uh, for a beautiful downtown Cliffside Community Chapel uh, from our Internet listeners, <coughs> excuse me, uh, who vastly outnumber us, as you know, as is obvious today. It's getting to the point where I see uh, very soon that my only recourse is going to be this live streaming solution that we've been considering. Otherwise, I'll be chained to the computer. <coughs> And I'll be typing. Yeah, typing. Um, um, and I'll have to respond to the questions. And if that happens, if I have to spend time at the computer typing, I will, I will, I will die. Uh, slowly, miserably, and tortured. Uh, just try to imagine me typing. And the newspaper headline or the newspaper story will be something like this. Steve Chronister ran screaming into traffic today. Inexplicably, inexplicably, I can't even say it, inexplicably, there it is, charging head first uh, into oncoming vehicles in, a, in an apparent attempt to beat them off the road with a plastic keyboard. And then there'll be a sad picture of my embarrassed and secluded family. Uh, but you all know what happened. I, I just can't imagine it, and I know it's coming if we don't raise this web presence because it's starting to uh, become sort of serious now. Surprising to me. So hopefully live streaming uh, will allow me to set aside uh, some extra time. I'm hoping to do it after or before the service or something that allow me to uh, just actually use the board. I got a wonderful email from uh, Sharon that I didn't uh, really get all of it, and, and Dave showed it to me earlier today, um, where she wants to see this board more so. And uh, that will allow me to do that, I think, if um, and I can get most of them uh, that way. And then I've got a permanent record because the questions do seem to follow a particular pattern. They, they uh, there's some that are frequently asked, and, and that would help me to get those uh, in a permanent form on our website, which is coming soon, as most of you know. And we're working on it all the time. But you can tell we have a very limited uh, uh, resource here. Our ability is. Uh, we just don't have very many of us, and we don't have time. Everybody has lives, and, and we all work other jobs, and it's just difficult to, uh, to take the time to do it, uh, the website justice. But we're working on it ever so slowly. But for today, I have a couple that I want to read. Kind of like, uh, you know, how O'Reilly does the mail at the end of his show, you know, what I'm doing. Because uh, these, by the way, uh, pertain directly to where we, we are currently and where we're going presently. Uh, the first is from Sharon in Texas, who I just mentioned a few seconds ago. You might remember Sharon. She does not want to be called uh, sarcastic. She wanted to be called sardontic uh, as descriptive of her letters, uh, which I, by the way, I called her letters, I think one day, delightfully sarcastic. And she took uh, issue with that and said she preferred sardonic. And uh, So I looked it up. Just for Sharon, Oxford uh, American Dictionary defines sarcasm as an ironical remark or taunt and sardonic as humorous in a grim or sarcastic way. Um, the difference may escape uh, most observers <laughs> first glance, but I'm going to concede there is a distinction, subtle as it is, and I'll stand corrected. Uh, 
God, and I will call uh, Sharon sardonic. But then I thought about it, and I, and I was tempted to uh, combine sardonic and sarcastic and create a new adjective. So I think I did. I, uh, I'm calling my new word sarcontic. It's my... Uh, yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a combination of sardonic and sarcasm, or sarcastic. So, sarcontic. Uh, and it would mean, of course, the combination. It would be humorous and taunting and, and grim irony. So, uh, Sharon uh, can expect me to call her that from now on. So, uh, uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to read her email. It's really only one sentence, but it's uh, very important. Do you have... Uh, to Stephen Cronister, uh, that would be me. Do you have any opinion on what is spreading rather quickly and is called New Calvinism, Pastor Stephen? Um, and uh, I'm aware of New Calvinism. New Calvin, Calvinism is really a, a, a nuanced old Calvinism. Uh, its major uh, or most known proponent is probably John MacArthur. I don't know if you're familiar with who John MacArthur is. A master's College and Grace Community Church out of California. Um, and it's sometimes, it's not called Lordship Salvation, but it is out of Lordship Salvation, which is a particular view that he has that he expounds rather prominently. I mention it today because we are headed into James, James chapter 2, where it's necessary to be able, you have to do this in your life as well as, as, um, with your friends and in your church, it's necessary where the reconciliation of James and Romans comes to the fore. The new Calvinists struggle with this. They, they struggle with this reconciliation and they're often unable to do it. And they think that there is a conflict between James and Romans. Or they, they come up with a compromise that is slightly inconsistent. They add things when they need not to in order to make, they make they make Romans part of the whole and James part of the whole, and so they make a combining of the two when the truth is is that James and Romans are not uh, parts of the whole at all. They're both the whole exactly. Um, and so that's where New Calvinism is, is, uh, is in trouble, I believe, and ends up with a ruthless approach to salvation. And that's problematic to say the least. It need not be the case. James, Paul, and Abraham do not disagree with respect to Romans 4. Or if you wish, Genesis 15. Okay? So we're going to be having to deal with that. And all of that, uh, James, Paul, and Abraham not disagreeing, that leads us to Jennifer from Arizona. And uh, you all remember her, I'm sure. Um, She has a beautiful family. And you felt guilty booing her last time. So uh, she has two pertinent questions for our immediate uh, location where we are today in our lecture. It says this, Hi, Pastor and Lori, because she knows that if she gets an email that she really got it from Lori. I type it, but Lori brings it up on the screen. It took me 40 minutes to type the last one. And then Lori sends it so it gets there and then tells me how to find out if it really got there, which is our process. Um, and so it doesn't count as me sending an email for those of you keeping score. Our church, hi, Pastor and Lori, our church is studying David 
and we just went through 1 Samuel 25. I wondered if Pastor has any sermons that mention this chapter. As you know, most of you might know, I named my dog after this chapter, uh, Abigail. I know there is depth there that we didn't get to in our study, particularly in verses 36 through 38. I may look too much at words, but I can't help but think there is meaning to stone ten days and struck. Um, and that is, she's absolutely right. Yeah, God uh, strikes someone dead there. It's very important. Would love to hear you if you get a chance. Blessings, Jennifer from Arizona. And then, hi, Pastor. Here's your other one. Hi, Pastor. This came up this morning with my mid-Axe Dispy friends that have marked me. Uh, Jennifer in Arizona used to have friends until she started sharing my lectures with people. Uh, this question came up this morning with my mid-Axe Dispy friends that have marked me. They don't believe we need to repent or ask for forgiveness. They believe Christ forgave us once for all, and we need to walk in that, and we need not do anything else. They believe repenting and asking forgiveness when we sin is putting Christ back on the cross. So they have a, uh, they have a, a misunderstanding to be um, to be the most accurate of what what's happening in Hebrews six is putting Christ back on the cross, putting him to shame. So in other words, they are. We have sanctification and we have salvation. And they have blended the two together um, when they are distinct. Sometimes things are distinct. Sometimes they're the same. You need to know when, when it is that it is. <clears throat> so I asked them about 1 Corinthians and Galatians where Paul says to examine ourselves and where he says we can be disqualified. I don't believe that means losing salvation, but God can take us out or allow consequences to happen that makes us ineffective. I told them we should all, I told them we should have all the fruit evident. If not, we should examine ourselves. I know where they are coming from. I stopped asking forgiveness and repenting last year when I was in agreement with this group and my heart grew sickly heavy. I realized what a seared, hardened conscience was and it ain't purdy. Repenting was the only thing that restored peace to my soul. I don't know how they do it. Any thoughts? I would appreciate it because I have a heart for these people. And then she includes a response that they have with regard to uh, uh, Romans. And uh, if you're interested, you can come up and read it. But uh, So we have mid-Acts dispensationalism and the typology of 1 Samuel 25. Those are Jennifer's questions, and you add new Calvinism to that uh, from Sharon. They seem pretty far apart, but actually both come into the Romans 4, James 2 congruency process, which is what we're in. We are headed out of Romans and, and through 1 Timothy uh, on our way to James 2. Uh, Mid-Acts dispensationalists, um, as, or what she called them as Mid-Acts dispies, which I thought was pretty, pretty cute. Uh, and of course, uh, that, uh, that kind of frame or that word, that title that she gave them, I would call what? That's right, I'd call it sarcontic. My new word. And you, you're, you're laughing, but you watch. Sarcontic will soon go universal. I have great power. Just because there's only, you know, we couldn't field three basketball teams or two hockey teams uh, here today. <laughs> Excuse me, uh, sarcastic. As I said, uh, just because I, 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 I seem to be uh, so small here in Alaska, uh, my tentacles go far. And uh, 
and you can mock if you dare, but remember fake sorry. And the most obvious of the obvious questions. I, I, I'm, I'm in commercials now with that. <laughs> I'm only barely kidding. Mid-Acts dispensationalists believe, and they assert confidently, that Peter and Paul have a different... Now stop right there. Peter and Paul have a different, different understanding of salvation. That's what they believe. That's mid-Acts dispensationalism. Right off the bat, you've you got to say, okay, wait a minute. Peter and Paul, or if you wish, Paul and James. But certainly Peter and Paul have a different understanding of salvation. Really. That's where you want to go. And it's not unlike Martin Luther. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Martin Luther, but Martin Luther thought similarly of uh, Paul and James. In fact, he he wasn't sure that James should be in the Bible. He thought maybe it was a... uh, it was extra biblical. He thought the, th- the same thing of Revelation. They didn't understand the book of Revelation either. And so, uh, so these kinds of thought processes come along every now and then, and, and you just have to begin to uh, approach them the way we should know. Aside from the immediate attack, when, when somebody says that Peter and Paul have a different understanding of salvation, that's an immediate attack, attack um, on what? You, you have two books of the Bible and you're saying they're what? In disagreement. So you're attacking the inerrancy of Scripture right off the bat. Or you're thinking, that kind of thinking will soon degrade into that. And, and that is very dangerous. You're, then again, as soon as you do that, you're, uh, uh, you're saying essentially that there is no inerrant authorship. There isn't divine authorship. Um, and uh, Wow. Why would you have it then? Ultimately. So, it, it isn't true. Peter and Paul did not have different understandings of salvation. So, you end up with being disrespectful to Scripture and in error. And you should expect that to happen. Expect those two to be hand in glove. Be wary of those who propose a dishonoring view of Scripture. I wouldn't ever want to say the Romans and James different positions. I wouldn't want to say that uh, Peter and Paul thought differently about salvation. Uh, I don't think that that's defensible. Uh, I'll get to why here as we go along. But uh, expect uh, disrespectful uh, beginnings to have uh, error in them. Be wary of those who propose a dishonoring view of Scripture. Ask them first, why do you want to believe this? Why don't you want to believe that there's something wrong with your ability to understand it? See, why not say, I don't understand what Peter and Paul, how to reconcile those two. I don't understand how to reconcile Romans and James. Do not go around saying, one of them is wrong, they're different, the Bible is in error somehow. How do you approach it? And so I always ask him, why do you want to believe this? What value to you does this position have? What are you getting out of this position? Ultimately, I always ask him this. How does this magnify or glorify you? Because that seems to be the trend. And that last one, that last question that I ask usually causes a fight. And you should avoid it. But hopefully you get my point. Have the highest view of Jesus Christ. Have the highest view of Scripture. Beware of anything that exalts a man or exalts yourself. 
perhaps the key to mid-Acts dispensationalism is to ask this question, because they seem to think this is very important. And, and I understand why they think it's very important. But ask this question to them. Uh, on what day did God form the New Testament church? That's very important to mid-Acts dispensationalists. What day did he do it? They want to know when in Acts. See, you have obviously Acts 2, you have mid-Acts. You have all kinds of places in Scripture where scholars will, will say that is where God formed the church. My question always is the same. What day did he use? Did he use a what? A feast day. Is it your position that he used a feast day? Because you know, I believe that he used a feast day. Same as Sinai. It makes sense to me. But they don't always agree with that. I think it's obvious that he used a feast day. I have Sinai. I have the Jews. I think it's an exact duplicate of what he did with the Jews. The day that he formed uh, the bride of, the, of, the, of Christ and the day he formed the wife of YHVH is the exact same feast day. To put it another way, ask, when did God do this? Instead of asking, when did man figure it out? Or when did man understand it? Not Just because mankind did not figure out what feast day he did it on, doesn't mean he didn't do it on that feast day. Does that make sense? We're going to have to deal with mid-Acts dispensationalism. We're going to have to. And ultra-dispensationalism. And five-point Calvinism. And four- and three-sixteenths-point Calvinism. And, and, and new Calvinism, which really is five-point Calvinism, but it's been modernized because we are in large city churches now. The church model today is huge, large city facilities. If you don't have a church over three to 5,000, uh, you are scorned in the uh, contemporary pastoral community. So obviously I am scorned. But that uh, new Calvinism was adapted uh, in order to deal with the, uh, the large city churches. Because it's hard to keep a big crowd, isn't it? So how do you do it? You make sure everybody has a piece of the pie. So you end up with an ecumenical process where we've got room for everybody's uh, doctrine or everybody's idea. It all kind of fits together. We can all have it. And therefore we can get large. The larger the group, uh, generally the more concerned I am about the doctrine. That's just neat. But anyway, that's going to have to be dealt with, as is Lordship Salvation. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of Lordship Salvation. Well, it comes right out. Nobody? Okay, one. Thank you for being polite. Uh, I'm going to have to deal with Lordship Salvation. It's a difficult problem in the church today. Um, and so, and Armenianism as always. But that's what new uh, Calvinism did, is it kind of combined all of these, uh, the Armenian position, the Lordship Salvation position, the Calvinism position, and they ended up with a modernized version of old Calvinism, or five-point Calvinism. So I'm going to do all that. Much to the, much to the delight of who? Now, the, the visitor, whom you don't see here today. And the visitor, once I start that, will never come back. And who could possibly blame them? Um, <clears throat> but it's important, and it's necessary, and it is where we are, and that's why I brought it up today. But, but as to the second question of Jennifer's uh, from Arizona, 1 Samuel 25 uh, typology, that's one we're going to address. So we're going to address that one because um, 
because it has a rich man in it, and it doesn't have any, any kind of rich man. It has a particular kind of rich man. What kind of rich man does it have? It has a dead rich man. And that's cool. So, we want to find as much as we can. It's a good thing to go around the Bible and collect all your dead rich men. And we're going to address it here because he's not only a dead rich man, but he's called a dead fool. So he is not only identified as rich, very rich and dead, but a fool. So it fits with our love of money is the root of all evil, First Timothy 6.10. A rich Pharisee in the midst of First Samuel 25. So uh, that's uh, where we've been. We've been on that 610, uh, 1 Timothy 6.10 path that leads to the someone said. So I'm going to attach the dead fool rich man to the someone will say. I'll just say, or the someone says, I'll just call it that a lot. But I'll just call it the someone. So I'm going to make a connection between those. And hopefully you've seen me headed this way. So that's what we're going to do today, First Timothy 25, and we're going to go to Luke 16, 19 through 31, and I'm going to have two dead, rich Pharisees, aren't I? said last week, loving money is the opposite of believing God, the opposite. And I called the loving money people the lovers of money. And they think things that are absolutely, perfectly wrong, as wrong as you can get. They're perfect wrong like a 16-year-old teenage boy. And therefore, they are valuable for us to study. It's good to know that which is perfectly wrong. It's nice to know that which is perfectly right. And it makes it really obvious that which is perfectly wrong. And I, 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 I would urge you to approach the perfectly right process first. But it's also, as I said, once you see perfectly wrong, it's really valuable to you. Much like Phariseeism, studying Phariseeism, I say often, determine what a Pharisee believes. Determine what a Pharisee is. Determine what a Pharisee does. Look at what Mark, or Matthew 23 says about Pharisees. Christ Himself, God in the flesh, talks about Pharisees, calls them uh, hypocrites, tells them that they are doomed. So figure out what a Pharisee is and then do what? Get rid of any of it. Expunge it from your life. If you have Phariseeism in your life, get rid of it. And now apply the same principle to the lovers of money. Determine why someone would love money. Love money. Why someone would crave power. You see, craving authority is essentially substituting ourselves into the realm that is God's, isn't it? If I crave power, I I should know, first and foremost, uh, where all power is. I should know where all possessions are, too. I should know a bunch of stuff like that, but I don't. And I love money, so I mistakenly think that money can do something for me that it can't, it can't do. And I think that I can have power, and I want it. Why someone would list, lust, I'm sorry, after physical material or hedonistic gratification to the total exclusion of their spiritual self? Uh, what's the motive for thinking like that? What are they trying to accomplish? What are you hoping to do with your money? Are you trying to get meaning from it? Now, I'm talking about loving it, not using it, loving it. There is a difference. The love of money is the root of all evil. And that tells you there's a relationship with Satan in Ezekiel 28. 
People want to be left alone in their sin. They want their sin to go on forever and unabated. And they hate the fact that God may come and interfere with that. And he will. And he does. Satan wanted to be uh, in a position. He wanted to be sit on the throne of God. What did he think God would do? Leave him there? Why would God leave him there? He wanted it. Did he think God would leave him there? If you love money, what is the relationship to what Satan thought he would accomplish? Lovers of money become pure monists. Completely monists. Monistic. Deniers of the spiritual reality. They are the opposite of what God says he is and what he wants in John 4.24. So a rich Pharisee is on the path to destruction willfully so fully aware, combining hypocrisy and works and narcissism, conceit and vanity in order to accomplish what? What's his motive? What's his purpose for doing this? Ecclesiastes, you know, everybody always says to me, um, I get it quite a bit, what would happen if the, um, the pharmaceutical industry came up with the pill that would extend the lives of human beings from 70, which is about where we we are now, maybe now you can make the case that 85 or so is the lifespan of an American, I would agree. But it would extend it from 85 to 300. Okay? And everyone would immediately think, wow, what a great idea. Who would take the pill? How how Who would get the pill would be my first question. How evil do you think people would get if they could live to 500 years of age? How long would people be in captivity in dungeons? 500 years they would be enslaved. There would be no relief. How evil would Stalin have gotten? Mao, Pol Pot, Everyone talks about Hitler. Hitler was an amateur next to Mao. Mao killed more people in a month. How evil would people get if they could live to 500? God has put a system in place that, that ends suffering and ends uh, slavery, if you will, and also ends evil, hasn't he? God is something that you should not recognize. He's really smart. He thinks things through. Duh. So, a rich Pharisee is combining hypocrisy and works and narcissism and conceit and vanity. How evil would he get if he could live, stay in his sin unabated, if God left him alone in his sin? Ecclesiastes 12, 6-8. through Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed, loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the picture shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. What he's talking about that is remember your Creator in your life before you are old and about to die. Okay? So in other words, don't remember your Creator just when you are about at the end of your life. Remember your Creator prior to that place. Then the dust 
will return. This is Solomon saying this, right? Then the dust and the Holy Spirit using Solomon to say it. Then the dust will return to the earth as, as it was. What's he saying there? The dust will return to the earth. What's he mean? That your body will return to the earth. But the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Okay, what's that imply? Who owns you? And remember, the dust will return to the earth as it was, but the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says Solomon. He calls himself the preacher. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Vanity, in that case, means useless. All is a waste of time. When he says all is useless, what's he talking about? The spiritual or the physical? He's talking about the physical. And if you are a lover of money, what are you focused on? To the absolute exclusion of the the spiritual. You're, You're focused on the physical, and the physical will go where? To dust. And it is useless. Let's focus on the spiritual. Notice the dust returns to the dust, but the Spirit will return to God. If you're going to learn one verse in the Bible, that's probably the one in Ecclesiastes for sure. The physical will die. The spiritual will not die. The spirit will, the soul spirit survives physical death, but will go to Him who gave it, which will be what? That's judgment, baby. Ain't getting out of it. Remember that, he said. Remember that. Put your name in there. I did. Dear Steve, remember that. Don't get focused on the physical. Don't love money. Don't crave power. Don't try to have something that you do not have any authority to have. You don't have a right to it. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. These are the last words of Solomon. And they're incredible. These are his last words. Think of them that way. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. So we're going to, this is it. We're going to sum it up. Here's, here is the wisest man that ever lived, uh, renowned for his study of biology and genetics and uh, plants, botany. He was a brilliant man who really understood pharmaceuticals. People came from all over the world to find out what he knew. What do you suppose he knew? He had more money than any man who has ever lived. What do you think he knew? He said, let me sum it up for you, the conclusion. Fear God. That's his conclusion. He's about to die. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is all man can do. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. You need to define good, by the way, how, def- how God defines good. What you think is good may not be what God thinks is good. What you think is good could easily be evil. What you think is evil, I hope, is, I hope that the converse isn't true with that. Because then you're in Isaiah 520 trouble. Okay, let's take a very brief, shallow look 
at 1 Samuel 25. I had to get Ecclesiastes out of the way in order to get you to 1 Samuel 25. So go ahead and turn. It's in your bulletin. We're going to run through it really fast, so we're going to do a terrible job. And we're going to find a dead rich man, a place that has a great deal to teach us about what God thinks of the lover of money, or what he thinks of monists, or monism. That's ultimately where I'm at, isn't it? And that will help considerably when we finally arrive at James 2 and Einstein's theory of relativity, because that's where we're headed as well. We have to contrast Einstein, Albert Einstein, with Ernst Mach, in case you haven't figured out how all of this fits together. I can't read the whole chapter, no time. First Samuel 25 um, would take a couple of months to go through. But you can do it without me, by the way, if you just stick to the rules. The Bible has something that, is, that I should put on the board more. It has something called Christocentric unity. The Old Testament is Christocentric. The Old Testament and the New Testament have Christocentric unity. The Old Testament is a giant portrait of Jesus Christ. That is what it is. and He tells you that's what it is. We are commanded by Christ himself to read the Old Testament uh, typologically, to search for him, to find the messianic uh, patterns. That's our job. And 1 Samuel 25 is one of these places that is marinated in Jesus Christ, and so our job is to find him. This is an actual, literal, real people event. These people lived, they did, and they said exactly what it says they did. Real people said and all and did these real things, and God has done something in it. What has he done? He has hidden himself. Christocentric unity. Okay? So let's take a run at it and see how far we can get. And it's never for me. 1 Samuel 25, again, it's in your bulletin. If you don't have one, make somebody get you one. Then Samuel died. That's our first verse. Okay. Got to stop now. Then Samuel died. What do we now know about 1 Samuel 25? We know that it has something to do with the death of Samuel. In fact, it's in a death of Samuel context. The death of Samuel is the context, is the umbrella under which the rest of it happens. If you disregard the death of Samuel, uh, you'll be in trouble. The, who is Samuel? He's a prophet. So the prophet died. Remember, Christ, Christocentric. The prophet, I'm going to make it capitalized and really big, the prophet died. What are we talking about? The prophet died. I'll help you out. I'll add Deuteronomy 18.15. Who is the prophet in Scripture? Especially at Deuteronomy 18.15. The prophet died. The prophet has died. Okay? Let's keep going. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went to the wilderness. So the prophet died, and David went to the wilderness. Christocentric, messianic patterns, 
So we're trying to figure out. Now, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, or Carmel, and the man was very rich. Cool. What's that mean? How does God define very rich? Is very rich good or is very rich bad? He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep at, at Carmel. So why, why, why is he shearing his sheep? The name of the man was Nabal, and the woman of his wife, Abigail, which is the name of my beautiful, sweet, very happy black Labrador retriever. Okay? Because I know what Abigail means. And that's why I named her Abigail. Um, labs are cool. I see Felice and Mark, they have a, a lab uh, named Happy. And that's a perfect name for a lab. Abigail has gone through life happy. <laughs> And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Now that's important. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal or Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men. Why is he shearing his sheep? It's time to get the money. He's after the money. Right? With shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men. Why ten? Why not seven? Why not five? Why not twelve? Why ten? How many commandments do we have? Oh, we have ten. What else do we have ten of? Anyway, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. Okay, greet means bless him in my name. Go to the rich man who is collecting his money and bless him. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be with you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. As opposed to what? You just thought he was being polite. He didn't have to be. He could have said, well anyway, we'll get to the rest of the story. Now I've heard that you have shearers. You're shearing, I've heard. What's he saying? I know that you're collecting your money, rich man. And he's in the wilderness. And he's a what? First, the prophet died. By the way, let's just go back to that a second. When I say the prophet died, what am I talking about in Scripture? 99% of the time. I'm talking about what? Say it loud. Crucifixion of Christ. That's exactly what I'm talking about. The crucifixion of Christ is where the prophet Deuteronomy 18.15, dies. And now I have the, who, what do I got now? Who's in the wilderness? David, he's the what? He's the king. I have the prophet, and I have the king. What are those? Those are two, two of the offices of Christ. Notice the king, the prophet king. Those are the two advents, or the two comings of, of Christ. Right? Let's keep reading. Uh, now I have heard that you have shearers, your shepherds here with us, um, and we did not hurt them. In other words, the shepherds, your shepherds were in my territory, and we did not hurt them. 
nor was there anything missing from them all the while that they were in Carmel. So in other words, your shepherds came into my territory. They did not get hurt, which meant what? How do I not hurt them? I protect them. And they came back to you with all of your sheep. What's he saying? The king. What's the king saying? Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. What day do you suppose that is? That he's coming on a feast day. He likes to come on feast days. What feast day is he coming? Ask the mid-act dispensationists. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. What's the operative word there? What's he say? He says something very unusual you'd never expect it except it's God. He says, please. This is the king and he is saying, please. How many men has he got? A lot. He's got an army. What do you got? You ain't got an army. He lets you have your sheep back. You got all your men back. You got all your sheep back. And now you're collecting the money. He could have taken your sheep, couldn't he? Well, he had them. He could have killed all your men. He didn't. Why not? Please, give whatever comes to your mind, if you will, to me, who didn't kill your men and take your sheep. Right? With the story so far. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered. I've always wanted to know when I see waited how long Nabal took to answer. He's sitting there thinking about it. He decides to answer this. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? The what? The king. The coming king. I know it's Saul at this point, but this is the coming king. And again, Christocentric. Christocentric. Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away, each one from his masters. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to the to men when I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. What's he going to do? He said to him, give me whatever you want, whatever you think. Nabal said, I think nothing. David said, mount it. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. Now one of the young men, this is one of Nabal's young men, told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to bless our master, and our master reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. Do you think it's possible that Nabal would see all his sheep and all his men come back and not know why? He clearly knows why. How many times does he send a whole group of shepherds out to the field? 
and all the sheep come back and all the men come back. I submit never. This time it happened. And he says, who is David? And the son of Jesse, who is this? They were a wall to us both by night and day all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you will do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his household. For he is such a scoundrel. He's so evil that we cannot speak to him. He is such an evil man. In other words, what's happening? What do they know is happening? They have gone to Abigail because they know something's going to happen. What is it? That army's going to come and kill everybody there. So you got to go. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, one hundred clusters of raisins, two hundred cakes of figs, loaded them on donkeys, and she said to her servants, Go on before me, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was as she rode on her donkey that she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down. Oh, isn't that wonderful? They're coming down. The king is doing what? The king and his army is descending. Why is he descending? He's descending to kill a rich man. I'll help you out here. Nabal means what in the Hebrew? Nabal means fool. That's the name. Abigail means joy of the Father. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. How did he repay him evil for good? Isn't it his sheep? Shouldn't he get to keep his own sheep? So what, you protected the sheep? My sheep, thanks for the favor. But David called that evil. Why is it evil? May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to Nabal by morning light. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, Oh me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. In other words, what? Kill me. Don't kill the household of the rich, very rich rule. Okay? The prophet has died. The coming king went to the wilderness with his band of mighty men being pursued, by the way, by the disobedient king Saul who sought to kill the coming shepherd king. And again, notice that the prophet has died context and and the connection that will have to the crucifixion. And notice the prophet and the king, the two advents of Christ. And the context then is the first advent of Christ, the death of the prophet, Deuteronomy 18.15. And now we have a very rich man shearing his sheep, gathering his money, and his name means fool. And it even says, for as his name is, so is he. Verse 25, very rich fool is married to my father is joy. 
And the coming king is in the wilderness and heard that the very rich fool was collecting the money. And the king sends ten young men on a feast day to bless and to say to the fool who lives in prosperity. He lives. The fool lives. How interesting that the fool lives. And he doesn't just live. He lives in prosperity. I want you to start making the application to who? This is an applicational sermon. Where are you in this story? Which one's you? Which one's me? Which one's us? Okay. The king, the king sends ten young men on a feast day to bless and to say to the fool who lives essentially this. Why do you live? How is it that you live? Why do you have wealth? How did you get your wealth? Why do you have peace? Who guarantees your peace? Are you grateful for your life that you live? By the way, give to the king whatever you feel like giving. This is ultimately what? That's right. It's a tithing sermon. <laughs> finally, finally did one. Find yourself in the story. Okay, it's not really a tithing sermon, but you get the point. Are you grateful? The fool answers, I don't know you. Essentially saying, who is God? This is mine. The first word that comes out of the mouth of a child after daddy or mama is mine. It is it is an omnipresent word in a teenage child. The fool answers, I don't know you. And, and David calls that what? To say I don't know you. He repaid my good with what? Evil. He says that someone who says, I don't know you, is evil. Okay? Again, Christocentric. Where is God? Where is Christ in the story? If you say, I don't know you, what does Christ call that? Evil. Why? I don't believe you. I don't know you. This is mine, 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 mine. And the messengers returned to the king with this response. So imagine... Put yourself in the story. God says to you, you live, you have prosperity. Give whatever you feel like. And you say, I don't know you. I don't know if you exist. I don't care. And the messengers go back. And God calls that evil. This is reviling. This is hating. This is lying, by the way. If you lie to the omnipresent, the omniscient, omnipotent God, do you really think you're getting away with a lie? There are no secrets, right? Everything in secret He will expose. Do you see the lie? 
Why would the fool lie to the king's ten messengers? What would make him do that? Think that through. I got ten messengers. He knows it's a lie. He's got all the what? He knows that somebody got those sheep back to him in one piece and he knows who it is. Why would he lie? Why would he lie? The king has what? An army. Why would you lie to somebody with an army? What are you thinking? What would make somebody lie knowing that 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 king can come and do what? Come out and take you out? Why would people lie and keep the money as if it is what? Theirs. What does God call that, by the way? Stealing. Who does this? Who lies and keeps the money and isn't grateful and pretends what? That nothing will ever happen to him. If you go on in the story as you read it, you'll find out that the, the fool, the very rich fool, threw a party for himself and called himself the king. So what's he doing? He's calling himself what? It's not God's. It's mine. And I'm who? I'm God. I'm going to throw a party for me. You see the application? I hope you do. As an aside, I want you to compare Matthew 22. That's Christ's parable of the marriage feast where a king sends out servants who are reviled and hated. Or Matthew 21:33, where the landowner sends out servants to the vine dressers who beat and kill the landowner's servants. You see, here's the key question. Do you own anything? The answer is what? No. You don't own. That is not something... If you start a sentence with, this is mine, you're in trouble, or I own, you're in trouble. Who owns? There's only one person who owns. Who owns? God is the only one who owns. If I had a dollar for every parent who thought they owned their kids, we would have a much nicer building. I would have much nicer clothes and a haircut. Okay. I used to get haircut, but they were terrible. That's kind of funny. Hardly anyone laughed. Most expensive haircuts I've ever gotten in my life. <laughs> anyway, we do not own. Who owns? Only God owns. Don't say you own things. That is ignorant. Sorry, not really. That's ignorant to say mine or or, I own this. Parents who think they own their kids. My goodness, how fast does it record? How much time do you think it takes a parent to figure out that he doesn't own the kid? Really fast, I hope. You should see Little League fathers, though. know what's going on there, but we got people coming in, so that means I have to hurry. We do not own the vineyard. God owns the vineyard. What is the vineyard? Don't think that you can own land or that you can own sheep, or worse, you can own people. We're just vine dressers. God has the grapes. He has the dirt. He has the vineyard. And what else does He own? He owns the vine dressers. He owns you. The spirit uh, that he gave you comes back to him. We don't own. We serve. 
We are owned. Remember that always. It makes your life healthier. Mine is said by children. The wise say God's. Now Abigail is told that Nabal has lied, that the king has told the truth. They, they came to Abigail and said, the king has told the truth. The king's men testified to the, or I'm sorry, that the, uh, Abigail's young men testified to the truth. And Abigail believes them and then got quickly to loading donkeys and rushed toward the advancing king. She wants to intervene, but she doesn't tell Nabal that she's doing it. How come she doesn't tell him? Got to answer that question. Now follow along at verse 20 here a little bit. Um, well, uh, see this descending of David and what he says. Surely in vain, he says. I'm not going to read it again, but I'm going to paraphrase it. Surely in vain, I have protected the monistic evolutionary philosophers. Does that make sense to you? I have protected the monists that believe that there is a physical only that I haven't given them life, that I haven't protected them, that I didn't give them water, I didn't give them air, that it all just happened, and there is no purpose or no place for me, and that I don't exist. Surely, uh, I have protected the monists. And I throw that in, and that's my own editorializing, and I'm, but I'm not sorry, as you know. Surely in vain the very rich fools who deny the existence of God, who mock the return, who, who mock the coming, who say that God will not come for what? He won't come. I can lie to him. It doesn't matter because he won't come. Why is he coming? He's coming to get his sheep. That's his. That's his land. It's all his. And what are you doing? You are pretending that it's yours. Why would you pretend that it's yours? You are taking what is his and you are stamping it yours. And you are saying mine and you're collecting it. What is that? That's evil. That's ignorant. Abigail, as soon as she sees him, dismounts quickly, falls on her face, bows down, falls at the feet of Jesus Christ, doesn't say of God, and pleads for the sparing of the very rich fool. Not because the fool deserves to live, but because the king is good. That's what she says. And Abigail is saved. And the testifiers that told her the truth are saved. Because God didn't come in and kill them all, which, we, which he will do someday, won't he? Sooner or later, he will end sin. He will not allow us to stay in sin forever. The very rich fool, however, as you go through the story, he continues along and he gets merry and he is a party and he drinks and he's oblivious and he's holding a feast for himself as if he were a king, as if he owned something. But in the morning light, the fool learns that judgment is coming and the king, I'm sorry, the fool is struck dead. For God will bring every work into judgment including every secret, whether good or evil. So there's your choices, right? Abigail or Nabal. One rushes to give God what is his, to acknowledge, to believe in him. The other makes a feast for himself and hates the truth and lies to God. Remember the one thing, right? The body will return to dust and the Spirit will go before God who gives life. Next week, we will finally get to James 2. Whose fault is it that we had to go through First uh, Samuel 25? That's right. Say it. 
with me all together. It's Jennifer from Arizona's fault. Let's rise and be dismissed.